Good morning, everyone. Uh, sorry. I think we can go ahead and, and uh, get started. They'll leave the back door open in case some folks want to trickle on in a little later. My name is Andrea Summer, and I'm at the Medical University of South Carolina. Uh, and there uh, I do a number of things. I wear a few different hats, but one of them is uh, travel medicine, where I see uh, young adults who are traveling and then families who are, are traveling with, uh, with children. So today I'm going to talk about keeping expat children healthy overseas. Now, how many of you have already traveled with children to do long-term work? Or short-term? Great. Great. So just an uh, overview of sort of what I'm going to go through. I'm going to talk a little bit about some, some safety issues, um, which are, are really, really important. Uh, because it's, it's actually accidents uh, that are the number one cause of morbidity and mortality overseas. Um, traveler's diarrhea, I'm going to spend a, a bit of time on. And then a longer period of time on vaccines. Uh, there's a lot to talk about there. And then we'll end talking about um, insect precautions and malaria. And uh, I, will, I will mention, I do have a little bit of orthostatic intolerance, so from time to time I might uh, sit down for a little while on the, on the chair here. Otherwise, I might get a little lightheaded and the, the talk could get very interesting, I suppose. <laughs> All right, so safety and security. Um, as for those of you who have traveled overseas, you know that it can be quite dangerous to travel at night, so you do want to avoid that. And that's for a couple of reasons. You know, sometimes the Potholes and roads there are as big as your car, and then uh, you also have to worry about um, bandits and whatnot. So it's, it's just, if you can avoid it, it is certainly preferable. Um, car seats, booster seats, those sorts of things you certainly need to take with you when you uh, travel overseas because they're not going to be readily available. Same for um, helmets. Um, flotation devices, and I will emphasize this because drownings are... Um, the number two cause of uh, mortality in children overseas. You want to make sure that you use the appropriate flotation devices, which may, again, not be uh, available overseas. And um, avoid risky activities. So I told folks if something is considered dangerous in the U.S., it's probably about ten times as dangerous overseas. So these, some of my friends with their um, children on top of the safari vehicle in uh, Tanzania, as far as lodging goes, when, um, when folks uh, arrive at their, their lodging, I encourage the parents to get down on their hands and knees and on eye level where the child would be and explore the lodging for any sorts of potential dangers. And this could be exposed wires, uncovered uh, outlets, pest poisons, um, paint chips that might contain lead. Um, and then, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, safety standards in place in the U.S. that are not going to be uh, uh, so overseas. So things like faulty balconies and, and faulty guardrails are, are not uncommon. As far as swimming goes, you want to stay out of the lakes and streams because uh, they are full of parasites. And some that can actually penetrate intact skin, like schistosomiasis. Um, other things, if you ingest some water, you might get some uh, intestinal parasitic infections um, or hepatitis. And then leptospirosis is uh, also a big problem in many areas. Uh, children, of course, like to run around with their bare feet, um, which is not very safe to do overseas. 
um, because um, there are a number of parasites, again, that can penetrate um, intact skin. So this uh, hookworm, of course, is notorious for doing that, um, as is Stroendoloides. And then um, there, if there are animals around, certainly um, hookworms that come from you know, animals, like the Ancelostoma species, um, that can cause cutaneous larva migraines or the creeping eruption. Um, any of you ever seen that, pictures of that? Okay, yes. Um, which, uh, again, would, would need to be treated with antiparasitic medicine. So, if possible, try to discourage your children from running around in their, in their bare feet. Uh, as far as food and water safety, you may have all heard the, the phrase, boil it, cook it, peel it, or forget it. Um, so, um, you know, when you're there long term, um, you, you know, you're going to probably want some fresh vegetables from time to time. And so when I, I was just in Tanzania in uh, September, and I was uh, having dinner with some uh, medical missionaries that have been over there for 26 years um, now. And, uh, you know, they said, you can eat salad here. Uh, this would be probably the only salad you'll have the whole time you're here. But, but they, you know, they um, sometimes they'll grow their own or they will um, – use a, a very, very mild uh, bleach solution to, to clean their vegetables prior to, to eating them. So I did have salad there and then uh, did quite well. Um, so things that are considered um, safe are fruits that you can peel. I'm talking about fruits that have a good thick peeling on them, like bananas and melons, um, uh, mangoes. But um, uh, berries and grapes, of course, you can't seem to get clean enough to, to eat, so you do want to avoid those. Um, and then, and then water. And so, for long term, um, you know, folks have uh, ways that they go about pure, purifying the water. It's not practical to drink bottled water for for months on end. So, um, boiling is one safe way to do that. When I've stayed in Tanzania for a month or so, that's how we uh, purified our water was to boil it, um, keep a supply of cold water in the refrigerator, and uh, and it's readily available. So a little bit about traveler's diarrhea. <laughs> um, so, it, you know, when you're going to be there long term, it's not a matter of, of if, it's when your child is going to get traveler's diarrhea. And uh, the, the highest attack rate, so the children that are most vulnerable are your, your young children that are under three years of age. And this is because they have a relatively immature um, immune system. And also because they um, love to explore the environment by putting everything in their mouth. So, they're, you know, they're more likely to, to get traveler's diarrhea. And when they do, you know, they tend to have more severe disease. Um, a lot of children these days get put on um, uh, either uh, – uh, some, some sort of medication for to suppress gastric acidity for reflux. Um, so we see that a lot, in a little, even in little babies in the U.S. So um, Zantac, your antihistamine, uh, your H2 blocker, and then your um, your uh, PPIs um, get used quite a bit. So if children own those, it suppresses their gastric acid, which is their first line of defense against harmful bacteria, which can make them more susceptible um, to, to um, traveler's diarrhea. So most folks get traveler's diarrhea within the first two weeks of uh, arriving in a, in a developing um, country. So uh, it, it does tend to happen early on. And then, of course, if you're going to be there long term, you, you can have it more than once, particularly if you're traveling around to, to other areas where you may get exposed to different bacteria. 
Which brings me to uh, the slide on what, what causes traveler's diarrhea in, uh, in young children. Well, it hasn't been as well studied as it has in adults, but some small studies seem to indicate that it's the same bacteria that cause traveler's diarrhea in adults. So uh, enterotoxigenic E. coli seems to be most common. Um, some of the invasive pathogens like Salmonella, Shigella, um, Campylobacter, uh, are, are also fairly common. Um, and then in, in young children in particular, viruses are another source. And, you know, rotavirus, uh, particularly in children under three, is, is quite common. Um, parasitic causes are less common, but if you're there for long periods of time, it's certainly um, more likely. And Giardia would be the most common parasitic cause. And um, it, it, uh, it particularly, if you've got a, a case where there's a persistent diarrhea or the diarrhea just won't seem to go away, then you really need to, to think about Giardia. So how can we prevent it? Um, so uh, the, the non-antimicrobial, so it, it, it's not recommended, let me preface this by saying first, that it's not recommended to take antibiotics prophylactically for traveler's diarrhea, and especially if you're going to be there long term. Obviously, that's not practical. But there are some non-antimicrobial um, uh, recommendations that have been tried by folks. So probiotics, um, it you know, looks like more and more studies are coming out to show that this may have some benefit in preventing traveler's diarrhea. And personally, I can tell you that I, you know, I've had some positive experience with this. Um, and again, this is something you can take, you know, longer term. Um, so there um, are a number, if you go and look at the selection of probiotics in the stores, there are a number of different ones to try. Um, some of the um, literature seems to suggest that the ones with higher colony counts, so, you know, 5 billion plus range, tend to work a little better. Um, and their different uh, strains have been tried, and um, this is just an example of uh, one study here that I have listed with the reference for you uh, with, that actually was a combination of strains that um, seemed to work really well. Now, bismuth salicylate is also known as Pepto-Bismol. Um, it has been shown to prevent traveler's diarrhea. Again, um, we don't want to use it in children because of the risk of um, uh, bismuth encephalopathy, and then the theoretical risk of Rye syndrome because it, it um, contains salicylates. So if the child was were to get a, a viral illness like influenza varicella and be on this medication, that, that could be quite harmful. So we tend to avoid that. Again, it's not very practical for long-term um, administration anyway. So when a child gets traveler's diarrhea, um, hydration is, is the number one priority, and particularly in these, little, young, uh, these little, little children who are under three where their risk of becoming significantly dehydrated is, is very high, okay? So I tell folks as soon as they get into their, their, desti as as they get to their destination to pick up some packets of oral rehydration solution. Have you all have seen this before probably? It, it, you know, depending on the country, it may, may look a little differently. I know I've seen some orange, orange and white um, packages as well, but um, you want to make sure you have that with you at, at all times. Now, um, a child has to be, you know, fairly de dehydrated or heading that way before they'll, they'll take this. This is not real palatable. It's very, very salty, um, although they have in the last few years cut down on the amount of salt in these preparations. It, you know, it's still pretty salty, but if a child's dehydrated, they will take that. 
Um, another option is um, Pedialyte that we have here in the U.S. Um, now comes in uh, powdered form that you can take and mix yourself. So that's another um, option. And, of course, we have different flavors, which can be a little more palatable to a child. Um, so I do encourage folks to take that with them as well. Now, treating it, um, particularly in more severe cases, um, it, it is recommended, as it is in adults, to go ahead and treat um, traveler's diarrhea. It does decrease the duration of the, the um, diarrhea and, and provides some uh, symptomatic relief of the abdominal cramping and that sort of thing. So um, azithromycin is first line for children, okay? And that's because quinolones, even though they're now Cipro is approved for children over a year of age, um, there is still that theoretical risk that it could uh, get, you know, get into the cartilage and cause some, some issues with uh, cartilage or um, growth even. But um, that's just theoretical. And when you're using medication for um, traveler's diarrhea, it's very short term. It's only uh, one to three days. So this is not long-term exposure we're talking about here. So occasionally I run across children who may be allergic to macrolides, which include azithromycin, so I may have to use quinolones in that case. Um, so rifaximum, any of you heard of that? It's it's uh, one of the, the newer medications. This has been around for years now at this point. But um, children who are 12 and older can take this one. Now, we'll caution you. It, it works, seems to work very well against enterotoxigenic E. coli, non-invasive pathogens. But this medicine is not absorbed, so it, it stays in the intestinal lumen. Um, and so if you have something that's uh, invasive, sorry, that should be salmonella, and like salmonella and shigella, we're not, you know, sure how effective it's going to be against those pathogens. But if you have just a typical, you know, watery diarrhea um, that most folks get when traveling overseas, then rifaximin seems to work pretty well. And the nice thing is it's not absorbed, so you don't have any side effects usually from this medication. So anti-motility agents, which are, you know, certainly recommended in adults with traveler's diarrhea to take that along with their antibiotic, um, we don't recommend these in young children. If you look in the literature, there are some case reports of this causing paralytic ileus um, in younger children. It can make things, particularly um, infections with invasive organisms, more severe. Um, so we discourage the use of that. Promethazine, which is also uh, a trade name known as Phenergan, um, is contraindicated in children too and younger. And actually there is now, there's a black box warning against um, taking Phenergan um, and children, giving Phenergan to children under two, and that's because of the risk of respiratory depression and even death. So stay away from this in, uh, in young children. So, again, some complications. We, we of course, talked about um, dehydration. Um, for If you have an invasive pathogen, um, you do have to worry about um, intestinal perforation and, uh, and sepsis. Now, and I'm also a, a pediatric hospitalist, so um, I tend, you know, see a number of uh, children who are hospitalized from time to time with, with salmonella. And just uh, last week, I was taking care of a little three or four four-week-old baby that had invasive salmonella, 
Uh, salmonella this year, I don't know, it has been really rampant throughout the, the U.S. with some uh, more virulent strains, it seems. But uh, this little baby grew it out in his stool, his blood, and his urine. Um, and from time to time, we have babies even grow it out in their um, cerebral spinal fluid. So it can be a bad actor in little kids. So, um, you know, that is certainly a complication. So it's generally in children under three months of age where salmonella become, becomes invasive like that, and then in, in, in any immunocompromised individual. But this year, I also took care of a little um, Hispanic child that had salmonella uh, bacteremia along with her gastroenteritis and well, she was uh, probably three or four years old. So it, salmonella has been a pretty bad actor this year. Um, for children who are diapered, um, if they have, uh, you know, uh, frequent diarrheal stools can certainly have some irritation in their um, uh, diaper area and get an irritant or contact dermatitis uh, that may require some barrier creams. And if uh, the diarrhea goes on for a period of time and that diaper area stays real moist from constant stooling, you can get some Canada um, infection as well. Now, this post-infection irritable bowel syndrome, I'll talk about this a little more um, tomorrow when I talk about um, staying healthy as a short-termer, but um, it's certainly been described in adults, and, uh, and it's uh, not, I think it's reasonable to think that it could you know, happen in children as well, particularly older children and, and uh, adolescents. So um, that's, you know, when you have per persistent diarrheal sorts of symptoms or abdominal complaints, that's something to, to think about. Um, if, you know, you work up the individual for um, additional pathogens like parasitic causes and that, and it all turns out negative, then this, this is something to think about. Now we'll shift gears and talk a little bit about vaccines. So routine vaccines, it's important to be, you know, up to date on those. And for folks who have um, really young children, young infants who will be traveling out of the country soon, you, you can um, use this accelerated schedule to get in as many doses of a series before, um, before traveling. So many of the vaccines can be started as early as six weeks of age and then may be given on month, in monthly intervals. Um, I will caution you that some of the, um, the newer preparations that are combinations that may have a, a DTP with a um, Hib and a hepatitis uh, to, to limit the number of actual injections. Um, those they recommend spacing six to eight weeks apart. So you might need to use the, the individual vaccines like DTP, IPV, Hib all separately um, if you're going to use an accelerated schedule. Um, measles uh, for children under a year of age, we do recommend giving measles early um, on, and preferably you don't want to find a, a a single a measles dose that's not combined with uh, mumps and rubella. That's harder to do. A lot of a lot of uh, clinics don't have that available, so you might need to give the the MMR. Um, but you can give it as early as six months of age, and we do recommend doing that. Um, now the child will still need to have. Uh, a booster at a, a year and then at four years. Um, influenza vaccines for children over six months of age. Uh, the, f the first year you give it, you need to give two doses separated by a month, and thereafter it's given yearly, but make sure uh, that the child is up to date on that as well. I included the vaccine schedule in here, which you can access this from at CDC. They update it every, every year. 
and they have one that goes from birth to six years and then for the older kids, seven to 18. So hepatitis A vaccine, um, that is a very, very common uh, infection in the less developed areas. Um, this vaccine works extremely well. It's about 99% efficacious. We don't have a lot of vaccines like this, and it is extremely safe. Most people don't have really any side effects other than a little bit of soreness at the injection site. Um, you want to get the first dose in and then a booster six to 12 months um, later. Now, it, it, this vaccine now is on the regular routine immunization schedule. So children between the ages of um, 12 and 24 months in a lot of areas are getting this routinely. But for older kids who may not have had it, it's important to make sure they get it prior to travel. Typhoid vaccine, we have two options. We have an oral um, live attenuated vaccine. Now, a number of you probably have already taken this vaccine before yourselves, but it is a pretty good-sized capsule. So, you know, it's actually um, approved for children six and older, but um, a lot of children six years old cannot swallow that big capsule. So you may need to opt for the intramuscular vaccine, um, which is not live. It's inactivated. You can give it to children two and older. It just doesn't work in children under two. Um, and they both uh, have, they have about the same efficacy between 55 and 65 to 70% or so. Now, the nice thing about the oral vaccine is, you, you know, you only have to booster it every five years. So if you're going to be somewhere long term, that's certainly much more practical. But um, the, the injectable one has, does have to be boosted every two, two years. We say two years in the U.S. and in Europe, I think they say three for the same vaccine. But two to three years needs to be boosted. So yellow fever, of course, usually a lot of questions about this one. So uh, yellow fever um, endemic areas are in sub-Saharan Africa and in tropical um, South America. Since 2000, there have been a number of outbreaks in West Africa in particular, and then Brazil has had a number of outbreaks, particularly in the southern part of the country. So yellow fever is transmitted by um, mosquitoes. The vaccine that we have available is the 17D strain, this live attenuated. It's relatively safe and effective, but I do caution you, there are certainly some serious side effects that we always need to think about. Um, the serious side effects tend to occur more at the extremes of ages, so in the elderly and then in little babies. So um, this neurologic uh, complication is the the one that is more likely to occur in young children, so in infants, um, which is why um, we recommend waiting to at least nine months of age to give this vaccine. Now, there are situations when folks are going to be travel, traveling to an area where yellow fever is important, and they may want to travel before the child is nine months of age. In fact, I have friends that do that who are now serving in Mali, um, and when they're youngest, um, was, I guess, about six months old or so. They were going to be traveling to Mali. And so they, you know, opted to wait to give this vaccine to the child who was a little older. If you give it um, less than nine months of age, you really um, need to talk with uh, experts at uh, the Centers for Disease Control um, who have um, a, a very good knowledge of uh, yellow fever epidemiology because you really want to understand what the risk and benefits of giving this vaccine are to someone under nine months, nine months of age. We would never give it under six months, but between six and nine months, if you're going to an area where there's, uh, there's a lot of activity, um, 
of yellow fever, then it might be better to, to give the vaccine, but I wouldn't do that without consulting with an expert at CDC. Um, there are some other contraindications. This is a live vaccine, so you don't want to give it to anyone who's immunosuppressed um, for any reason, been on steroids, anything like that. You certainly want to avoid it in that situation. And, uh, and those with a, um, an egg allergy can, can have um, allergic side effects as well. Any questions about that? Okay. So Neisseria meningitidis. Um, it causes epidemic and endemic disease all around the world. We uh, uh, certainly think about it, um, most often we think about the meningitis belt in, in Africa where there's a lot of activity usually during the um, dry season, December to, to June. Serogroup A actually is, is uh, most common in the meningitis belt. There's some uh, C as well, but A really predominates. The vaccine that we have available, um, well, there are two vaccines that are available. So there's the conjugate vaccine, which um, we're hoping uh, is going to give longer-term protection. We thought one dose was going to be all that was needed, but now we, now we have to give two. We have to give a booster three to five years later. Um, it, it's equivalent in uh, the serogroups as the, as the other, the older vaccine. So it's ACY and W135. This does not include the B strain, which causes, you know, about 30% of disease in the U.S. Um, and that's because they've tried and tried to include the B strain, but it doesn't seem to be immunogenic. So it hasn't been successful. So this vaccine um, can be given now down to nine months of age. This is new as of this year. To change the recommendation, it was two years to 55 years. Now it's down to nine months of age, which is great. Now rabies. Um, this uh, infection can, uh, can occur worldwide. Dogs are the primary reservoir overseas. Um, and uh, as you all know, it's, it's, um, it's universally fatal if someone gets rabies. So we certainly want to uh, uh, avoid it and uh, use um, the vaccine uh, when it can be helpful. And it's very much so recommended for folks who are going to be doing long-term work. Um, as you know, young children tend to be drawn to, um, to animals, so that's why they are very high on this list for um, indications as, as uh, folks who should really get this vaccine. So it is expensive, I, I will tell you, and it's three doses, um, and it's about, about $150 or so per dose. So, um, and if you've got you know, more than one child that needs it, it, it does get very costly. It's inactivated, so it, and it's, a, it's a safe vaccine. Um, you can't have a little fever. Um, an achiness after the vaccine, but no, no serious side effects usually. And it can be given to an infant um, and child of, of any age, really. It can be given down to two months of age even, so very early on. So how is it helpful to get this pre-exposure series? Well, for one, it eliminates the, the need for the uh, rabies immune globulin if you have an exposure. So if there's a dog bite, um, and, you know, the immune globulin is usually given at the site of the bite, um, you don't need that. And that's important because it can be harder to find overseas, um, for one thing. And um, sometimes the preparation of, of the immune globulin and the vaccine, for that matter, are not as pure as they are in the U.S. You can have more side effects. So um, 
um, it is helpful to get that pre-exposure vaccine. The other thing is it do does is it reduces the number of doses of the vaccine required after an exposure from four to two. Um, so that's helpful as well. And what about BCG? Have any of you uh, had to consider whether to give BCG to a young child before going overseas? Okay, good. So this comes up, and I actually um, get some emails about this from time to time for folks who are going over to serve long-term and have children under the age of five. Um, so I've had friends who have immunized their um, young children with BCG. Now, remember, what BCG does is help to prevent uh, disseminated disease, severe disease in a young child. It does not protect against pulmonary disease. Um, and, um, and, you know, it's just not a, a long-term sort of protection. So it, it, it's a tough decision. So some folks have, have given it. Um, other folks have opted not to because, the, you know, the, their children are going to have pretty good access to, to health care. So if they get symptoms that might be suggestive of tuberculosis, they can uh, get, get screened and, you know, put on medication right away. Um, also, if you don't get the vaccine, it... Um, it helps when, when you're doing your, um, your skin testing. It uh, leads to less, less confusion down the road with that. So there are pros and cons of, um, of doing it that way. Um, there certainly it's, it's not, not, not harmful to give it um, unless the, you know, the child has some sort of uh, immunocompromise or suppression because it, too, is a live vaccine. But any questions or comments about that? Any of you that have had to consider giving that prior to travel? Okay. So Japanese encephalitis. Um, it's a disease of rural areas, so um, it is recommended for folks with extensive, they're going to have extensive rural travel in Asia. It's also recommended for folks who are going to be there, be there long term. This is another um, uh, infection that's transmitted by mosquitoes. And there are, uh, well, there is now uh, a, a vaccine option that is um, inactivated, has been approved in the U.S. since 2009 for, for folks, though, that are 17 and older. So there was an older vaccine that had been approved for children that were 12 months and older, uh, but that is no longer being manufactured. And I think the, um, the old supply that is, is essentially exhausted. I don't think there are any more uh, doses available of the old vaccine. So what do we do for, for younger kids? So we'll tell you that there have been some studies going on overseas that have looked at the safety and immunogenicity of this vaccine and shown that it seems to be safe and effective. And they did some dose-ranging studies over in India, um, and it looks like three micrograms probably is the right dose. The adult dose is six. Um, there's an ongoing trial over in the Philippines right now looking at safety as well. And then in some of the industrialized areas, including the U.S., there are five site, study sites now where they're um, testing this vaccine, uh, again, looking at safety and, and immunogenicity. How, how well does it work? Um, so it, we're still about a year or two out before it will likely be approved for children in the U.S. So if you're traveling to an area where, you know, you need your child to be immunized for this, the options are um, 
to, to talk with your physician about using this off-label for younger children. Um, and since it seems to be safe in other uh, trials, I think that would be a very reasonable thing to do. You could also enroll the child in an ongoing clinical trial. I know in Winston-Salem they have a trial. Uh, I think in Florida there's a site. There are five in the U.S., and it, you can... You can look, um, I think NIH website has a, the, the five sites that are listed around the country that are doing this now. So you can get your child enrolled in a study. Um, and also it would uh, be free that way as well. Um, and then you can, um, when you get to your destination, go to a travel clinic or some sort of uh, international clinic there where you could, could get the vaccine for your child overseas. So mosquitoes can give you um, a lot of things. We talked about yellow fever uh, being transmitted by mosquitoes, Japanese encephalitis, malaria, of course, and then dengue fever. There are a number of uh, infections that can be passed on by mosquitoes. So it's really, really imperative to limit um, uh, mosquito bites as much as possible. So the malaria mosquitoes tend to, tend to bite after um, after dusk, so during the night, um, just before dawn, dengue, fe dengue fever, mos the mosquitoes that transmit that, the Aedes aegypti, uh, bite more during the daytime hours. So there's really, really no time that you can relax. Um, so what, what um, is helpful is to stay as covered as possible, and of course in lightweight um, clothing, it's preferable that it's light colored. Mosquitoes tend to be um, attracted to darker color clothes, blacks, navy blue. Um, you can treat clothing, clothing with permethrin-containing insecticide. You, you can do it yourself. You can buy clothing now that's already been treated and it supposedly lasts through 100 washes. Um, it, that can be a little more expensive, but you can treat it yourself, although, um, the, which typically lasts several weeks or so, so you may need to you know, retreat um, periodically. But you, you can buy a can of this permethrin or a spray bottle, and uh, it tells you on the can what to do. You basically hang your clothes up, spray them till they're, they're almost damp, and then let them dry overnight, and they're, they're good to go. Uh, and that's very helpful for keeping away mosquitoes, ticks, uh, all kind of insects that, uh, that might bite you. So um, you also want to have your, your child and yourself sleeping under permethrin impregnated bed nets, that is imperative. Um, again, the permethrin helps to, to keep the insects away. And even it's been shown that even bed nets that have maybe holes in them, the, if they're treated with permethrin, they still tend to be very, um, very effective. So what about insect repellents for young children? Um, you know, in this country we say the deep concentration uh, under 10% is what's uh, preferable, but in places where you have life-threatening uh, inf infections to worry about, like malaria, um, it is quite safe, if used appropriately, to use concentrations in 25 to 35% in children. So the repellent, um, you do never let your child, obviously, uh, put the repellent on himself, um, but you want to put it on uh, areas of exposed skin, never on the hands or face of a young child because, you know, children tend to touch around their eyes and their, and their mouth, and we don't, certainly don't want them ingesting any, um, any DEET. Uh, but, uh, you know, if used appropriately, it tends to be very, very safe. Now, um, there are some longer-acting preparations 
Now, so this 25 to 35% concentration gives you about four to six hours of, of uh, protection. If you're going to be out all day um, and into the evening, you might want something that lasts longer, maybe 12 hours. And there are some preparations that have this uh, concentration, 25, 30% or so, that will last for 12 hours. There's one brand name, I think, called Ultrathon. It comes in a lotion, um, and that is, is uh, certainly an option. Now, malaria chemoprophylaxis. Uh, now, you know, thinking about this long term, uh, for folks that are overseas for years, there are a variety of ways of doing this. Um, I was just over in Tanzania, um, and the, my uh, friends over there have been there for many, many years. The way they opt to do it, and they're living in Arusha, Tanzania, which is an urban um, area, uh, where the transmission of malaria in that area where they're living and sleeping, um, you know, having, you know, where, where you're sleeping is important because at night, you know, the malaria mosquitoes are nighttime biters. So, um, you know, it, it's where you sleep that helps determine your, your prophylaxis, you know, when, when you use it. So they don't use it when they're um, in Arusha. Um, when they travel over to the coast or out um, and more in the western areas, out where the safari land and all of that, then they will use their, their prophylaxis where the transmission is much more intense. But um, when they're at home in Arusha, they don't, they don't use it. Um, now, my, I have also have uh, friends who are serving over in Mali. Now, uh, they have, there's very, very intense uh, transmission there, but it's usually seasonal. So what they um, have opted to do is when the transmission is very, very, season is very low, they don't use the prophylaxis, but when the, um, the transmission becomes more intense, um, they start their prophylaxis again. That's a, another option. Now, if you're in, in an area where the transmission um, is not seasonal, then, you know, it, it becomes a bit more, more tricky. Um, now, I'll, let me go through some of the, the options for use. So, so chloroquine, there are not many areas in the world where you can still use chloroquine. Um, certainly in Central, Central America and parts of of China, chloroquine is still a, an, an option. The nice thing about it is it's, it's safe for children of any age um, and size. And in, in overseas, it even comes in um, liquid formulations. Now, in the U.S., it has to be compounded or you use the, the pill and, and crush it. Um, the other thing about this is, that's really important to know is it has a very narrow therapeutic window, which means um, if you get a little too much of it, it can be highly toxic. So there have been case reports, and you know, they're published in the literature, where children have, have uh, gotten into and ingested some chloroquine and um, actually died from in, ingesting it. So you want to keep this medicine way out of reach of children. Uh, Mefloquine also is, has been shown to be safe and effective in children, regardless of their age and size. Um, it's given at a dose of 5 milligrams per kilogram, and it's given weekly, which is, which is very nice. Now, the side effects um, they seem to be similar as they are in adults, although children tend, tend to tolerate it a little, little better than adults in terms of the psychiatric effects. Yes, it can cause you know, sleep disturbances, more vivid dreams, that sort of thing, but um, uh, outright uh, psychosis, and whatnot that we sometimes see in adults, particularly in adults with psych history of psychiatric illness, are not so common in little children. 
Um, other children you don't want to uh, use it in is, is any child that has a, a, a heart problem, particularly a rhythm disturbance. You wouldn't want to use it in that situation in a child with a, an active seizure disorder. So this is, I'm not talking about febrile seizures here. I'm talking about a child with, with epilepsy who um, is on medication to prevent seizures. You would not want to use it in that situation because it lowers the seizure threshold. Um, a lot of children will have some nausea or vomiting from this medication. Um, again, it's not available in a liquid formulation, um, so you would need to, um, you know, cut, cut the, the pill into the appropriate dose. It can be cut into fourths, um, crush it, and put it in some food substance to give it that way. Um, it tastes horrible. Uh, so you want to mix it with something to make it more palatable. Chocolate uh, disguises bad medicine very well. So that's, that's uh, often a, a good option. Um, and you want to drink plenty of fluid when you give this medication. Have the child drink plenty of fluid. Now, atovaquone proguanol uh, is a great medication. Very few side effects. The problem is you have to give it every day. And it is expensive if you're going to be somewhere long term. Um, this is not available in liquid either, but it does come in a pediatric tablet that even younger kids can tend to swallow, okay? Um, if not, it also can be crushed and put into some sort of food substance. Um, and you, you really just need to start it a day or two before going to a malaria area. So, I mean, if you're in an area um, where you don't need to use uh, prophylaxis on a, on a daily basis, if you're at a higher elevation or if, you know, the transmission, if it's during a low transmission period, um, and, but you're going to be traveling to an area uh, for a shorter period of time where you might need that, Th this is a good, good option. Uh, so you can start it a day or so before you go and then end just a week after you come back from that area. So that's, I think, a great option for that. And I have the dosing listed there. Uh, now, finally, doxycycline, um, and it, it's a preferable option for a lot of folks because it is a lot cheaper. Um, the problem is uh, some of the side effects, um, gastrointestinal, you know, number one, I mean, you, it can cause some, um, even some esophagitis if it is, is not taken appropriately. You want to take this early in the day. You don't want to take it and lie down because uh, it, it can uh, cause a lot of reflux, which can lead to esophagitis. Photosensitivities is a major side effect, and it's certainly not a desirable one when you're in the tropics, right? And then yeast infections, um, for if you take it for prolonged periods of time. Now, it is approved for uh, children who are over eight. Children under eight, it can cause some staining of the teeth, so you want to, you know, avoid it um, in younger children. But it, it is very inexpensive, so um, for that reason, you know, a lot of folks do opt for this one. Um, medical kit, is, it's good to um, have a number of medications, routine sorts of medications on hand just in, in case there's any minor um, emergency. And this would include things like Tylenol and ibuprofen and antihistamines, uh, antibiotic creams, antifungal creams, very important. And then um, lots of, you know, sunscreen, um, bandages and those sorts of things for minor emergencies and, you know, just keeping... Um, uh, wounds very clean is, 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 of course, imperative. I included some um, 
resources here, some websites that have a lot of information. CDC, the travel section, have you ever looked at that? It has a, a lot of good information, um, some country-specific information um, on various in infections that are um, fairly common. And then WHO also has uh, a good bit of information um, on um, malaria and um, has country-specific um, information as well. It's also uh, good to look at the um, State Department uh, section on travel because uh, it tells you a lot of uh, warnings in terms of, um, you know, activities where uh, terrorist activities, those sorts of things where uh, U.S. And, and other folks from abroad may be at, at risk. Um, there, I always advise people to, to go to that because it changes uh, fairly regularly. So it's important to look at that, that website and see what the travel warnings are and see and sometimes there's certain areas within a country that you want to avoid. So you certainly want to be very knowledgeable of that if it pertains to, to the country where you're traveling. So I think, yeah, that is it. Maybe just a couple minutes for questions if Can you answer like the risk and benefits of like chemoprophylaxis for malaria, whether that's continuous or intermittent versus the intermittent preventative therapy for malaria? Now that's a good question. Um, so the question for those of you in the back was um, the, the use of intermittent or continuous prophylaxis versus intermittent um, preventative treatment. And so that would be, the treatment would be, certainly if you're going to be there long term, would be, would be another um, option. And, um, I, you know, in, in the travel medicine literature, I don't read about that so much, but it certainly seems very practical to, to do that if you're going to be there long term and you don't want your child, you know, having to take something every day. Um, so I think that certainly would be a reasonable option. But I haven't seen, any, seen anything in the literature recommending specifically for folks who are, you know, expatriate living overseas for long term. Excellent question. For the meningitis vaccine, I mean, I know that we give it more starting at age 11, but for people that are traveling overseas, mm -hmm. what is the recommended? Yeah, so this, the question was uh, about the meningitis vaccine. We now routinely give it to children who are 11 to 12 years of age is when it's, it's, it's recommended in this country. Um, if, if, your child, if you're traveling overseas, um, there are uh, areas, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, where it is recommended to give it to all folks who are, are traveling there. Um, if, particularly if they're going to be there long term, have a lot of contact with the local population. So, again, I would certainly recommend it. And now that it can be given down to nine months of age, I think, you know, any child really traveling overseas should go ahead and get that vaccine. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, thanks for the very helpful talk. A lot of great information. Uh, I was wondering if you could comment on sunscreen and vitamin D. Sunscreen, O and vitamin D. So sunscreen, you mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. They do tie together because, you know, folks who are wearing sunscreen, it, you know, it's, it's certainly a concern that they're not getting their vitamin D uh, as, as readily as those who are not. So um, sunscreen can be used on even young infants. Is that kind of what you're getting at? And it should be used regularly. Um, you know, the sun is very intense uh, along the, the equator there, so it doesn't take much exposure at all, just minutes before you can, if you're susceptible to, to burning, to get burned. So, but you can use that really on any aged in infant. 
Um, is that kind of what you're asking about sunscreen? Um, and then vitamin D. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if your, your child is not a, a dairy fan and is not, you know, getting uh, vitamin D through other sources and you depend on a little sun exposure, then, you know, that's, that's a little more tough. And so some, some folks say, not if there are any dermatologists in the room, that, that you can do about 10, 10 minutes or so in the sun with no sunscreen to get, get some, some vitamin D that way. It doesn't take you know, I don't think a lot long. Um, the exposure doesn't have to be real long to get some vitamin D. So that might be an option. But you have to be really careful with that. Yes? Okay. So a question about uh, rabies vaccine, the lower uh, age limit, and, and really there, there is none. Um, it can be given to any age uh, infant. I think most folks do wait till about two months of age. Reason being, um, it, it can cause some fever, okay, and you don't want your less than two-month-old having a, a fever because then they will get uh, all kind of tests done, including a spinal tap probably. So I would wait till two months, I think. And... Oh, insect repellent. So when can you use DEET? Um, you know, in really young infants, um, particularly those under six months of age, they're fairly easy to keep covered. So I would, you know, put long, um, long sleeves, long pants on them, keep their little feet covered, and, and try to protect them um, that way. Because um, you, you never want to put DEET on hands and face anyway of, of young children. So when they get, you know, over six months of age, when they're out exploring their environment a little more, then you can start... You can use a 25%, right. How do you avoid heated exhaustion in uh, your children if you're in a very hot uh, Warm climate, huh? Yeah, how to avoid heat exhaustion. Well, um, one, of, one of the main things, you know, is staying, you know, out of the direct sun. And you want to make sure the child stays very, very well hydrated. Um, and, um, you know, limit any real physical activity in the most, when the sun is its most intense during those times of the day. But, um, but that, is a, that is a good question because sometimes it's, it's hard to avoid that in, intense sun. But um, staying in a, in a shaded area and lots and lots of fluid is, is uh, very important. Yes? Oh, that's a good question. I, to any of you who have been overseas long-term know if at the embassies vaccines are available? Anyone know? Okay. So I, I also run an international adoption clinic, and I, I see children who have, have gotten, uh, particularly if they haven't been immunized at all, have gotten maybe a first set of vaccines at an, in an embassy. But um, that, I'm not sure if they're available, you know, to, to everyone. Um, but as far as getting... Uh, subsequent doses for series over overseas. Now, some, you know, if they're working in a hospital setting, serving in a hospital setting, um, may have, you know, that option there where they're working uh, to get subsequent doses. If you're out in a more remote area where, the, you know, vaccines might not be as readily available, it becomes a bit problematic. You know, I mean, you might have to travel to a bigger city to do that. But, but they tend, you know, tend to be. Now, not all of them are going to be available. Some of the the newer vaccines that we have in the U.S. aren't 
going to necessarily be available overseas. But that, that I'll have to look into that. Thanks for bringing that up. I will certainly look into that. And feel free to email me, and I'll try to get you the answer. Anybody else? Well, thank you so much. Great questions. in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, you're in California. You know, we do um, we do pre-adoption uh, evaluations for folks all over the U.S. So I can give you my card if you okay. would be helpful. But that's great. Um, you're still considering it now. Well, we have two: Taiwan and Vietnam. So you, you mean your older child had trouble going over to Vietnam because of anxiety with the actual trip or with the whole process of having a new member of the family? Or you think it's it both? Yeah. Yeah. And it's been even since we've been home. I mean, oh, like still a that yeah. And how long ago was that? When did your doctor um, that He was two then, and he's turning six tomorrow. Oh, my goodness. And still so having some difficulty. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, do, do you have do you have an adoption clinic? We do. We have one. Um, UCLA has one. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Because in in our clinic, it's multidisciplinary, so we have a um, developmental behavioral pediatrician too, who helps kind of work with the families, particularly when there's some sibling difficulties when someone's first adopted. To help. But were you asking for specifically for a book, maybe that? Well, well, I have some books. Some reading materials. In your experience, have you ever heard of other kids who have had an issue? Yeah, there's certainly been <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, certainly been children that have had some issue with travel. So you're you're planning to take obviously your whole family Just because it's so long. long. Yeah, yeah. But, but I struggle because you know he does mm-hmm. have issues, so it's like yeah. which is better yeah. to leave him here for so long without mommy and daddy? Yeah, or to, or to take, take him, him probably to Uganda. Oh. <laughs> so. That's a great question. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it'd probably be better to take him That's with you, I think, for that long a period of time. Unless he just uh, does very well with grandparents or something like that, where, you know, he was still pretty secure. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is a lot of vaccines for you, Uganda. Uh, but, yeah, I. Yeah, I think it'd probably be better to, to yeah. take him yeah. with you. And then, I'm sorry, one more question. Um, we're, we're adopting HIV. Thank you. Yeah. Um, have you had any Oh, yes. Yeah, I sure have. Um, I've had a few folks adopt from Ethiopia uh, with children that do have HIV who actually are doing really well. I mean, they're followed in our, um, our infectious disease clinic and their you know, HIV clinic and are doing remarkably well. I mean, they've been on therapy. Is this child on therapy already? Well, we don't have one specific yet. don't have one specific yet. They've um, been on therapy over there and we're really doing well. And one was a little bit older, even. I think about four or five. Yeah. 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 That's, that's wonderful. 
Okay. But here, let me give you my card so you can email me with questions. I'll be happy to.